The Fanboy, episode 101. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 101 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, So today's the day, huh? Today is the day that Warner Brothers releases Joker, a film that's been on the tips of many tongues for about a month now. You know, ever since it won Best Film at the Venice Film Festival on September the 8th, folks have had a lot to say about Todd Phillips' film starring Joaquin Phoenix about the beloved Batman rogue. But an interesting thing happened somewhere along the way. You know, the buzz in certain online circles morphed. It went from, this is an amazing artistic achievement that's going to surprise and astound audiences everywhere. It won Best Film at Venice. It got a standing ovation. It's this big, phenomenal thing to pay attention to. That was the initial buzz after people finally actually saw the film last month. And then somewhere along the way it became, this is a dangerous, vile work that shouldn't be seen. It is a dangerous, cautionary tale about society and we need to decry films like this and so on and so forth. And, you know, that, that, that in the eyes of some, these have been the kinds of extremes that this film has been discussed in. And yet here we are. You know, it opens today, officially, and last night's previews have taken place, the results are in, so let's see how much this controversy, you know, quote-unquote, killed the movie, shall we? So according to Deadline, the film earned $13.3 million, shattering the October record set last year by Venom, another film, by the way, that had a bunch of online baggage holding it down. Though the concerns on that movie, by the way, you know, the online high for Venom was a little different than for Joker. You know, with Venom, it was less about ethical and societal concerns and more about folks seemingly, you know, rooting against the movie and hoping it would fail because they couldn't get why Sony would make a Venom franchise that would never include Tom Holland's Spider-Man, which is, you know, it's funny that we now know better. But anyway, we'll get more. <laughs> there'll be more on that later. But the, the film seems to be on a trajectory to perform better than Venom did last year, and in general, for a low-budget, R-rated, very artsy comic book movie, it looks like it's going to do extravagantly well at the box office. But what about fans? You know, because you don't really care about the money it makes. What do the fans think? And there's news there, too, because fans are obsessed! Oh, post-track noted that preview audiences last night loved the film, giving it four out of five stars, and they noted that 84% of the people they polled were positive about the movie. Also worth noting, by the way, is that only 62% would recommend it to others, which I do find interesting, because, and this is a little bit of a tangent here, but, you know, I've seen this trend a bit now with The Joker, where I've, I've seen enough people say something like, I love it, but it's a tough ride, and I don't know if it's a journey I want to take again anytime soon or, like, recommend to others. It's a trip. I was sick to my stomach. I was shaking. It was powerful, but it's a lot. 
And, you know, I've seen that sort of sentiment echoed plenty of times this week, as more and more people have seen it. Uh, by the way, if you haven't yet checked it out, you know, I, I deployed Brett to go see a press screening of it last Tuesday. Uh, I, you know, I could have gone myself, but I kind of want to experience this movie in an audience with real audience members around me, not journalists, not writers, not influencers. You know, there's a very different vibe on an opening night audience, yeah, at an opening night audience, than the kind of vibe when you set at a press screening. I know this is like hard for some of you to relate to because, you know, how many people go to press screenings, right? But take it from me. It's a different vibe. You, 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 you get the people who seem to really want to, you know, at press screenings, you kind of get the people who seem to really kind of want to flex their opinions, which is kind of one of the things we're talking about this morning anyway. But you almost experience it in oral, live-action format when you're at a press screening. Because you'll hear people scoffing out loud, and you hear a little bit of this, like, holier-than-thou. And on your way out of the theater, as the credits roll, before you can just get out of the theater and out onto the street where you can kind of process and digest what you've just experienced, you're listening to 90 armchair quarterbacks on their way out of the theater discussing the movie on the escalator and each of them tripping over themselves trying to sound like the most interesting critic that ever lived. And I tend to have to like, you know, put my headphones in because I don't like hearing what a bunch of supposed critics think about a movie when I'm trying to still figure out how I feel about it. Like even now, I haven't checked the Rotten Tomatoes reviews for Joker. I know what the percentages are. I know what the general buzz and the tone and tenor of the conversation about the movie is. But for me, when I see a movie, I like to just let it sit with me for a little while. Or if I'm there with a really good friend or, you know, or my cousin Brandon's in town, like, sure, let's, you know, then let's find, let, let's dive right into a geeky dissection of it, even as the credits roll. Because you know what? I'm here with someone who I trust. I'm here with someone who is a friend or a family member of mine who has similar tastes and similar thoughts on these things as I. So you know, for me and this person to now rip this movie apart and discuss it makes a lot more sense than hearing what a bunch of strangers with their neck beards think about it. So anyway, that, that was like a tangent also. But either way, um, Brett saw it on Tuesday. His review is up on revengeofthefans.com. He loved it. It was a big wow. It was a big, like, he, you know, he's the opposite way. Rather than feeling like this was a challenging film that he needs a break from, you know, he wants to go see it again because there's a lot, apparently, to unpack in this movie. So I bring all this up because everyone's talking about it. The buzz is going to be very positive. But if enough people feel like this is a tough movie, I wonder what that means for like the, uh, the word of mouth. You know what I mean? Because usually, you know, when a movie opens big, you expect the word of mouth is going to be awesome because it means a lot of people love the movie and they're probably going to their friends and coworkers and going, oh my God, you got to see this. But if instead of doing that, they're going around telling their friends and coworkers that this movie is great. But it is hard and unsettling and uncomfortable and stomach churning and you got to go in with the right mindset. You know, it's going to make for a very interesting second weekend, you know, because what, what is that word of mouth? Can you think of a movie where people say it's awesome, but 
it's a little tough. You know what I mean? It, it, Joker seems like one of those movies that's going to have a very interesting, you know, run at the box office because of that, depending on what people are saying about it. But all right, now let's end the tangent though about you know the the complex way that people discuss the Joker. You know, let, let let's get back to the reception the film itself you know has gotten so far. So not only did post track note that fans are loving the movie, but even Rotten Tomatoes, whose audience score I now actually pay attention to because they've started verifying that users bought tickets for the movies they're rating. I know, what a novel concept. But, you know, I'm starting to finally, you know, give a little weight to the Rotten Tomatoes audience score. And I checked this morning, nearly 2,500 fans have contributed to an overall percentage of 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's 2,500 fans. Meanwhile, 313 professional critics gave it a score of just 69%. And this is a film that's just been rapidly tumbling over the last week or two. It was in the 80s initially, then it dropped to around 79, and now it's really dropped, which really, this is where the conversation of of a, you know, a quote-unquote agenda against the film comes from. But I guess, you know, this seems to be a case, just like Venom and even Bohemian Rhapsody last year, where critics and fans do not agree at all. Which brings me to my main point today. We're living at a very interesting time, and you can choose to brush it under the rug or act like it's much ado about nothing, but it's going to get harder and harder for you to do that because there are two different trends going on in society, and it's even leaking over into how we discuss all this geeky shit. And they actually share a fairly direct link, these two different trends. And I don't see a lot of people talking about them. But first, let's isolate the two trends I'm talking about. I'm talking about cancel culture and the distrust of experts. Now, we're fairly familiar with cancel culture at this point, I think. You know, it's a branch of the current wave of woke social justice activism, where if you say or do something that enough people find offensive, you're suddenly the target of boycotts, protests, petitions, impassioned editorials, and could even lose your job. And, and, and this is regardless of whether or not you've broken a crime. This is literally just for saying something offensive, for conducting yourself in a way that made a bunch of people feel poorly. All that could happen. So by now, most of us, I think, are aware of how all that works. You know, the, the sort of online outrage machine, which, again, I don't have a huge problem with. As long as they're targeting criminals... When, they, when they're going after, like, rapists and people who need to be investigated by higher authorities, I'm all for it. Let's get those investigations going. Let's lock up the people who are being accused. I have no issue with any of that. But when it's against people who just made a joke or cracked wise about something or said something in a context we're unfamiliar with, that's where I kind of, you know, me and the online outrage machine don't really uh, get along too well. But... You know, we're living in a time where folks question everything while, at the same time, they're getting their news and facts from places that have their own agendas. 
So that doesn't really work, right? If you're going to question everything and if you're going to act like you're smarter than an expert or, you know, if you're going to act like your opinion or your say on something matters, you know, that means that it behooves you then to make sure you're getting your news and your facts from the most wide-ranging possible number of outlets. So you can kind of cross-check things and see, well, does this actually check out? Or is this just one channel or one website or one journalist saying this? But nowadays, that's not really happening. That's sort of like checks and balances and making sure, hey, maybe before I share this article with the incendiary headline, let me read the full article first. And let me look into what the article claims. No, 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 you know what? The sharing of the incendiary headline or the thought-provoking headline is more interesting to me than actually finding out whether or not it's accurate. So, you know, we're kind of in this zone where people don't really want to do the research, but they love to tell you how right they are. And what you end up with are lay people, like you or I, acting like, you know, some snarky headline they found online can invalidate years of well-researched data from experts who've spent their lives working on one thing. You know, everyone thinks they know better, probably because they simply have access to more information now than they ever did before. But having a smartphone in your pocket doesn't make you smart. Having access to all of the accumulated knowledge of mankind over the course of thousands of years, now at your fingertips because of your smartphone or your ability to go to google.com, having access to that doesn't suddenly make you an expert on anything at all. But, you know, you, you gotta, you, you, there are enough people out there who seem to feel that their opinions matter more than the analysis of those who dedicate their lives to the mastery of something. That they themselves, you, the, the lay person, what do you really know about the subject that you're opining about? Is this just a thing that you bitch about online that you think is going to get you you know, points with your friends and brownie points with your relatives and, you know, is this just something that's get lots of nice likes and retweets because it seems like it's a cool issue? But are you actually, like, in the trenches researching any of this stuff, finding out if any of the stuff that you're either discounting or propping up are really, in fact, true? Probably not. I find more than anything, you get a lot of paper tigers out there. You get a lot of people who come across very strong and very passionately about things, but the second you question them about why they feel a certain way, they crumble. And suddenly they can't, you know, counter you with facts. Instead, they have to go after you as a person, which is always the number one sign. As soon as someone starts insulting you as a person, rather than trying to dismantle your argument, you should just know deep down you've already won the argument. You know, you should kind of take solace in that little fact. But... You know, that is kind of the way things go nowadays. And, you know, I, I bring all this up because one of my listeners, Nick, um, at Nerdy Nick's Nook on Twitter, you know, wanted to hear my thoughts on the influence of critics on general audiences using their followers and outlets and, you know, leveraging all of that quote-unquote clout to try and flex their, their, their influence and their power over the things that they write about. And, you know, I know that Nick is someone who's just one of many people who are concerned that the negative chatter surrounding Joker would hurt the film. 
And he seems to feel, and, and, and there's a whole subset of fans out there who seem to feel that critics are purposely trying to tank the movie because of some sort of agenda. And while I can't speak to the notion of an agenda or some conspiracy against Joker, because, yeah, there might be, but I'm not, I'm not going to go there right now because that's not, you know, I, this is not a conspiracy podcast. But what I can do is happily point out that general audiences have shown in the last couple of years that they don't give a fuck what critics think. If the trailers look good, or if it's part of a property they love, they'll be there. You know, just ask The Lion King, a film with a rotten 53% score that is the second biggest movie of the year so far. What this means is that people probably pay more attention to what their friends think than what critics think nowadays, which makes plenty of sense, kind of getting back to what I was talking about before. You know, when you go see a movie with a friend and you want to talk about it afterward, that makes a lot of sense. Rather than going online and talking to a bunch of strangers, talk to your friends, talk to your family, have friends. That's a separate issue. But, you know, don't mistake your online little click for real friends. But that, you know, again, that's, that, that's a whole other, you know, thing that we can get into some other time. But, you know, in terms of where you're going to take your recommendations from, you know, getting it from your friends makes so much more sense because they share your tastes, they share your interests, and therefore they can more accurately recommend a movie to you. It just makes sense to me. So no, Nick, I don't think any of us should be worried about whether or not critics are trying too hard to wield too much power because fandom has the ultimate power. Fandom, like the rest of society, seems to be thumbing its nose at what experts think, at what experts think. So I wouldn't worry too much about that stuff, Nick. And, and while that's, you know, th this whole thumbing the nose at the experts thing, you know, while, while that's very concerning to me when it comes to political matters or environmental issues, when it comes to something as ultimately trivial as a piece of entertainment, I think it's totally fine for fans to go their own way. Because here, then we're really just talking about opinions and we're fighting against censorship and we're basically telling the people who are trying to tell us how to feel about certain projects or what to watch or what should be canceled or what we should be paying attention to, all they're trying to do is force their will upon you. So I will always support fandom's ability to look to those people and go, no, I don't care what you say. This appeals to me. This appeals to my friends. This is something that I want to support. Do not try to make me feel less than because I'm interested in this thing. Don't give me your judgment. If you feel this way about this thing, then don't watch it. If you feel this way about this thing, then don't support it. If you feel this way about this thing, write all of your angry clickbait headlines. It's not going to affect whether or not I'm there on opening night. And that's what I like about fandom. Ultimately, people have the power, Nick, not the entertainment critics with their blue check marks or their thousands of followers. You know, when it comes to entertainment, experts really are kind of a dime a dozen these days. And that's why I kind of don't mind when, you know, the, the fact that you got these guys out there really trying to flex and make themselves so self-important. I really wouldn't worry about those chumps. 
because fans don't really care. And bigger picture, you know, the reason I draw a correlation between cancel culture and our newfound distrust of experts is because I see attempts to cancel certain artists failing miserably. It's kind of happening now with Joker, as we've just discussed. But, you know, Nick also mentioned the recent controversy surrounding Dave Chappelle's new stand-up special, Sticks and Stones, which debuted on Netflix about a month ago, but now the, you know, the album version of it is available for purchase. And that special, Billboard just reported yesterday, debuted at number four on their charts, marking Chappelle's biggest debut ever. This, despite all kinds of outrage from the online outrage machine, from all kinds of journalists, media types, social activists, because of some of the subject matter he explores in this new comedy special. So he's just another example of the online, outra uh, the online outrage machine trying to silence something only for it to be incredibly successful. And that's why I don't really engage on any of this stuff. I don't engage in conversations about canceling people. I don't get all upset when an expert says something I disagree with. If it's something about a serious matter, it makes me want to go research it and want to find out, well, why does this expert feel this way? Maybe there's a part of the picture here I'm not learning or something that, you know, that I'm not seeing yet. When it comes to entertainment, though, and just what some critic who sat in a seat and watched a two-hour movie, when it comes to what they think, I, you know, I, I can't imagine caring. I just can't imagine caring. And, and people getting this upset or this worried about the movies, about their projects, about all of this, you know, there's all this concern around Joker. Just like last year around this time, there was all this concern around Venom, all of this sort of like this false fire that goes off whenever the, the, the online hive disagrees with the general audiences or seems to try to pull down a project that a lot of fans are excited about is I want you to remember Joker next time this happens. Next time, because this is now two years in a row. We have Venom, Joker, same thing, opening weekend in October. So who knows? Maybe it's going to be whichever CBM, whatever comic book movie, opens the first week of October next year. If it's got a bunch of online baggage and people speaking about it in weird terms and, and there, there almost seems to be like a palpable sense of people rooting against the movie, just remember that all you really have to do is log off of Twitter. Because above all else, I never mistake Twitter for real life. So the Joker is here. Fans love it. It's going to be a success story for Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment. And it would appear that the clown prince of crime and those of us who see what's going on out there in the world will get the last laugh. But now, let's get to some headlines. Our boy Marty Scorsese is in the headlines this week, and no, it's not because he's got some huge movie that you need to watch tomorrow, although The Irishman does look unbelievable, but no, he's in the headlines because he had the audacity 
to speak ill of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, that's right, folks. In an interview with the with Empire Magazine, there's a quote that's going around all over the place today that uh, you've probably seen it, but just in case you can't, that's why I'm here. I'm here to talk about the headlines that actually matter. Um, Marty says... I don't see them, he's referring to the MCU movies. I don't see them. I tried, you know, but that's not cinema. Honestly, the closest I can think of them, as well made as they are, with actors doing the best they can under the circumstances, is theme parks. It isn't the cinema of human beings trying to convey emotional, psychological experiences to another human being. So that's what he said, and there's a lot of fans who are up in arms about it. But... To the fans who are up in arms about it, I, I kind of want to ask you a question, all right? Do you get upset when you hear your father or your grandfather or any elder tell you that your music isn't music? When they go, that's not music. When I was a kid, we used to listen to X, Y, and Z, and that stuff is music. You know, do you get upset at those people when they say that? Or you do, do you just understand that there's a generational difference? And Scorsese looks at all of this very differently than a lot of us do. Because he's from a different, you know, he comes from a different time, a different world, a different way of viewing what movies are, what cinema is, what is the art form of film. You know, in his mind, art is this provocative, exciting, living, breathing thing where the artist has found a way to express complex emotions through some sort of beautiful metaphor, whether it be a film, whether it be a book, whether it be a song. You know, it, it's the expression of an artist's internal feelings and dreams and hopes and everything and inspiration. And it's the audience being moved by that expression of art. You know, to some people, that's what film is. And that, you know, that, that is a sort of sacrosanct, important thing to honor and respect and understand about the medium of film. And then for some people, film is just a way to kill time. You go and you see a movie and it's, it's a pastime for an hour and 45 minutes. And by the time the credits roll, you've already forgotten it and you move on with your life. There's all kinds of different degrees of whether or not you know, film should or shouldn't be a particular type of thing. And things are evolving a lot nowadays. The way we consume entertainment is different. The way society views entertainment is different. The apparent importance of entertainment has evolved quite a bit in just the last 10 years alone. And that's why, like, I, I don't get upset when I hear about an elder statesman who is somehow not impressed by Ant-Man. You know what I mean? It doesn't shock me when I find out that people north of 60 look at this stuff as the death of high culture. You know, I mean, my, my father falls into that category. My, my father is who got me into movies, who is who got me into wanting to analyze movies the way that I do and have these exciting, excitable conversations with you about this stuff that we all love. You know, my dad's the one who got me into all this, and yet... If I ever ask him, hey, you want to go see uh, the latest Marvel movie with me? You'd think I was inviting him to a funeral. You know, and it's just, it's just a, uh, it's a generational thing for people who grew up watching movies in the you know, 60s and 70s and whose parents showed them you know, how things were in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. If you grew up on a certain, you know, a bit of Hollywood history in a certain, in certain eras of Hollywood, 
you don't look at the MCU the way, you know, a 20-year-old person does. You don't view it even just the way a 36-year-old schmuck from Flushing looks at it. You have your own way of processing this. And, you know, in truth, if we're going to be, if we're going to speak frankly, you know, Marvel Studios, the, the way they approach their movies in particular, and this is not a knock on them, but I've pointed this out many times before, they approach their movies less like movies and more like TV shows, you know, TV episodes. It's episodic storytelling, trying to get you from point A to point B and trying to keep you invested for the next chapter in this story. You know, it's a different type of storytelling. It cannot be compared to the types of films that Scorsese is known for making. It can't be compared to like the kind of stuff that you'd see at your, locals, at your local art house theater. It just can't. And that's okay. It probably shouldn't be. It's its own thing. You know, I, I, I love, you know, I want to point to a quote from Kevin Feige, who back in June of 18 was asked about how the fact that, you know, the Marvel films are the biggest thing in Hollywood. You know, when it comes to like award season, when it comes to prestige and respectability, you know, it doesn't necessarily get much credit. And Feige said, Maybe it's easy to dismiss VFX or flying people or spaceships or billion-dollar grosses. I think it is easy to say that you have already been awarded in a certain way. And he's talking about the fact that I don't really need awards. Look at all that you know, is going on for us. But then he added an interesting note. You know, he said, Alfred Hitchcock never won Best Director. And yet, and then now this is just me adding, you know, Hitchcock is revered as one of the, as one of the greatest most influential, most talented and artistic directors that ever was, who some of his, some of the techniques that he pioneered are still used to this day. And you still hear the term Hitchcockian as a, as a, a descriptor for certain movies. You know, his influence cannot be understated or overstated. It's huge. He's a legend. Yet he never won Best Director for anything. He didn't get the respect or the prestige of his peers, but the body of work did what it did. So anyway, getting back to his quote though, Hitchcock never won Best Director, so it's very nice, but it doesn't mean everything. I would rather be in a room full of engaged fans. And the reason I bring that up is because it is a different experience. Seeing an MCU movie is very different than going to see something like, I'm sure like when I go see Joker later on, you know, I'm sure it's, it's a very different thing. And, it, and, and I kind of circle back to, if you want to go back to the episode I recorded shortly after seeing Avengers Endgame, you know, that experience to me was almost like going to a sporting event. It had like a big event feel. It didn't feel like a movie. It felt like an event. I was in a packed theater. People were, you know, were breaking out into applause and random like standing ovations, even as soon as the lights dimmed for the movie to start. And during the movie, there's the oohs and the ahs and the boos and the shrieks of delight. It was like, honestly, it was like watching a live sporting event. It was, it was a very sort of different feel than going to go and, and watch like an arty, serious film. And so when Feige mentions being in a room full of engaged fans, well, yeah, that's what he's going for. And, you know, and he's not trying to do high art. His films are not trying to do the things that Scorsese says that they do not do. That's by design that they're not like that, because that's not the kind of work that he's trying to do. He's telling an episodic, comic-infused 
storyline that one arc of it just wrapped after 11 years. And now we're about to start kind of like a new arc. And that's what he's working on. He's not trying to impress anyone or win Academy Awards. I know this sounds like I'm kissing up to Feige and Marvel Studios. I'm not. But I'm pointing out to those of you who feel like Scorsese's remarks are this awful insult to the great MCU franchise. It's like, no, A, he's just speaking from his particular perspective, from where he comes from as a filmmaker. But B, those are not the kind of films that Marvel's trying to make anyway. You know, when, when, when they made Doctor Strange, they weren't hoping this is going to be the film that inspires a whole new generation of storytellers. No, they were just trying to, you know, make a Doctor Strange movie because they're going to need Doctor Strange to be established in this because he's going to be a huge deal in Avengers Infinity War. Everything is kind of like a means to an end. They're filling in certain pieces of the puzzle, trying to tell you some big overarching story. And along the way, they'd love it if you bought some Happy Meals and t-shirts and you know told all your friends about how awesome marvel is you know it, it, it's a it's kind of corporate sure but that's what they're going for they're going for serialized comic book entertainment not high, not high art so you know marty has pissed some people off talking about this stuff I still am going to go rush out the mo first moment I can to see The Irishman. I have no ill will whatsoever towards Scorsese for saying this. And when I read these remarks, you know, to me, A, I kind of agree with them. But B, even the part of me that thinks he's being overly critical just kind of files this under crotchety old people saying, This isn't music. That's just kind of how I... Uh, that's kind of how I uh, digest and internalize this, this brouhaha over Martin Scorsese saying that the MCU is uh, not cinema. And while we're talking about the MCU, uh, let's follow up a little bit. This is, it can be the third week in a row I talk about this subject, but that's because there are new updates every week. Um, so two weeks ago, or two episodes ago, we spoke about how Tom Holland's Peter Parker was now apparently leaving the Marvel Cinematic Universe forever. Then, on the last episode, the news literally broke while I was recording, which facilitated me having to go back and re-record the entire Spider-Man segment. So I kind of hope that doesn't happen again, because I don't want to have to re-record anything. I have a wedding to DJ in a few hours. Um, but... The latest update, unless one breaks right now, is everyone's talking about the fact that Tom Holland himself was integral in getting this fixed, in getting this situation fixed, getting Sony and Marvel Studios back on the same page so that Marvel can help produce Spider-Man 3 and they can kind of continue the work that they began with Spider-Man, well, actually with Civil War and then Spider-Man Homecoming. You know, continue the work of having Spider-Man back home around all of his uh, famous Marvel brethren. You know, so they're going to get to continue that. And apparently, a lot of that has to do with Tom Holland himself taking a very active role in trying to get these two sides to the negotiation table. So here is the latest, and this comes directly from Bob Iger from Disney, uh, you know, on the subject of, uh, of Tom Holland, you know, getting involved. He said, miraculously, he was. We had an event called D23, and Tom was there because he's a voice 
in Pixar's Onward. He said something on stage, and it was clear that fans wanted Tom back as Spider-Man, made by Marvel and our Marvel production team. And after D23, Tom reached out to folks who work for me and said, can I please have Bob's email address or phone number? I said, sure, you know, have him contact me, and he did. And they, you know, he, then he goes on. He says, we spoke, and he basically made a, he cried on the phone. No, not really. But it was clear that he cared so much, and actually, we care about him. So I felt for him, and it was clear that the fans wanted this to happen. So after I got off the phone with him, I made a couple of phone calls to our team at Disney Studios, and then I decided to call the head of Sony, and I said, we have to figure out a way to get this done for Tom and for the fans. And we did. That's how it happened. Sometimes when companies are negotiating with each other, they kind of forget that there are other folks out there. So there you go, folks. You know, Tom Holland is the Spider-Man we need. You know, if, if you're the hero, if you're, if you're in the camp that you wanted Holland's Spider-Man to continue to co-mingle with his Avengers cohorts and still be part of the MCU, even which is something that I myself was sort of happy to see him kind of spread his web elsewhere and, and see what some other storytellers can do with him since I wasn't that impressed with Far From Home, which I know is you know, uh, controversial to say. But, you know, if you're someone who, who is dying to see him back, it's clear that Holland felt the same way and you can apparently thank him personally for helping get this deal between Sony and Marvel struck so that Spider-Man 3 can happen with Kevin Feige and just, you, just to remind you guys, too, because you know, a little bit more uh, detail has come out about the new arrangement. And the new arrangement is, you know, Marvel will have to foot the bill. They're going to put up 25% of the funding, but they're also going to get an increased, you know, they're going to get 20, they're going to get 25% of the profits from Spider-Man 3 when it comes out. So that's new. It used to be like a 5% thing. And I'm pretty sure Sony paid for the entire production. But it looks like they found some sort of compromise where it's like, all right, so you want to be involved? Fine. So you have to put some money involved, but then you'll get some money back if it's a hit. So that seems to be kind of the way that they, uh, that they negotiated this whole return for Tom Holland as Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But, uh, you know, let's go ahead and, and turn our attention to the other big comic book universe, shall we? Let's talk a little DC. Let's talk a little Batman. Because in the last week and a half, there have been a, an awful lot of fun little casting rumors. And last week, I actually didn't even touch on the big Batman ones. And there are some new ones to talk about this week. So let's finally get into some of that. So last week, the big talk was that Jeffrey Wright is apparently in talks and is pretty much expected to be the new Commissioner Gordon. And the other big rumor was that Jonah Hill is apparently also in talks, but for a villainous role. Some people think it's going to be Penguin. Some people think it's going to be Riddler. Uh, either way, people seem a little less confident on the Jonah Hill bit than they do on the Jeffrey Wright bit. So let's talk about that first, as that seems to be a little bit more of the, uh, you know, the, the, the more solid of the two castings, the one that seems to be a little further along and that we seem to have a little more uh, information on. If Jeffrey Wright gets the role of Commissioner Gordon, I will be very happy. 
Uh, I think Jeffrey Wright is a very talented actor. I have for many, many years. And what I like about him more than anything is that he always finds a way to imbue his characters with a very rich, very strong, very palpable uh, internal life. You know, you look in his eyes and you could almost hear him thinking. He always seems to have a lot going on inside him. Like he's not just reciting lines or just trying to get from, you know, the start of the scene to the end of the scene. He always plays these characters who seem to have a lot going on. And I feel like that will be awesome for Gordon because as the commissioner of a, you know, police department in a city like Gotham, where there's corruption and there's politics and there's masked freaks running around killing people and there's a vigilante dressed as a bat that you have to accept as an ally and that you actually have the courage to accept as an ally even when your other law enforcement brethren think you're out of your mind. You know, it it's a role that requires someone who could deal with a very complex internal life. For someone who's trying to deal with pressures and pressure points hitting him from all over the place, be it from work, be it from home, be it from the criminal underworld, be it from the citizens who feel like he could be doing more, you need someone who can play that they have the weight of the world on their shoulders. And Jeffrey Wright can definitely do that and can be pretty badass when he wants to be also. So that's why I feel like you know, he, he kind of strikes that perfect balance for me for the types of things I would like for Gordon. And so Jeffrey Wright, to me, is an immediate thumbs up. And Jonah Hill is, too. I don't know who he'd play. You know, my, my initial gut tells me Penguin because, you know, when we think of Jonah Hill, we think more about, like, the sort of short, stocky, douchebag roles that he's played in, like, Superbad and some of those other, like... Uh, you know, frat pack comedy type things. But, you know, I've also seen him be a serious actor, and I know he can turn it up when he wants to. So what I'm thinking is he could easily pull off either one. I think Penguin is probably more likely. But either way, I'm happy. I like Jonah Hill. And I will be excited to see what he does with, you know, with whichever role he takes, if he does indeed take a role. Then the other big rumors, and these only sprouted up in the last, I want to say, 24 hours or so, is that we got some Catwoman, apparently, uh, suggestions. We have the, There's a short list floating around, and I'm not going to get into the specifics of the list, because I know how these lists get generated. I know how this stuff happens. We just went through it with Batman. We go through it with a lot of these projects. But when it comes to short lists, you know, it's always like a combination of you know, supposedly what the director wants, supposedly what the studio wants, as well as what, like, casting directors and agents around Hollywood are just trying to put into the atmosphere because they want their clients to get looked at or they want to build buzz. You know, there's always any number of reasons that these lists get compiled. And, you know, very often the, 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 the top five lists don't necessarily come true. So that's why I'm not going to read too much into the list itself, but I will comment on it because a couple of you asked me to and because it is Batman related and it's Catwoman and it's kind of a big deal and it is kind of fun to get into some of this fan casting stuff. So, you know, of the names floating around, the one that I would put my weight behind is uh, Gugu Mabatha Raw. Uh, I've been a fan of hers 
ever since the San Junipero episode of Black Mirror on Netflix. Uh, I've thought for a while that, you know, she really brings the goods. You know, she, she's got talent. She's got charisma. She's got real acting ability. Uh, she's very easy on the eyes. And in general, I've always kind of thought, like, I'd love for her to become a bigger star. And that hasn't really happened in the last couple of years since San Junipero. But if they announced her for Catwoman, I would be doing backflips. So of the rumored names, I'd go for her. Some of the other ones that are on this top five list are already like very active members of other superhero franchises. And I know that that doesn't disqualify them from getting these roles. We've seen lots of people do stuff for both Marvel and DC or Fox and Marvel or whatever, you know, working for a rival studio and then showing up and being in a different movie for a, a rival comic book company. But for me personally... I just don't dig it that much. You know what I mean? So when I see names like like Lupita Nyong'o, like she's already in Black Panther. She's very visible there. She has an excellent role and she's exquisite with that role. So if she suddenly double dips and now is also Catwoman, to me that just feels a little like, really? Aren't there other actresses we can be looking at? Same thing with Tessa Thompson, who has been, you know, she was a big part of Thor Ragnarok. She had a nice-sized role in Avengers Endgame and is apparently going to play a big role in the fourth Thor movie, the one that's coming out where she's apparently, you know, she's the king of Asgard now. She's the queen, I should say, of Asgard. And, you know, it's she's already, like, she, she's busy. She's in the MCU. Leave her alone. I don't need to also see her as Catwoman. And then there's Alexandra Shipp, who's, you know, she's been Storm for the last couple of years, and the X-Men franchise only just wound down. And, you know, I don't know if I'm clamoring to see her now go to a different superhero franchise. So for me personally, uh, based on the fact that she hasn't done one of these kinds of roles before, and the fact that I thought she was, you know, I thought she had a star-making turn on Black Mirror, you know, I would love to see Gugu Mbatha-Raw and no matter what, it seems like, you know, similar to what they did with Commissioner Gordon, they seem to be going for a person of color, for Catwoman, and I cannot see the harm in that. I don't get, you know, I, I think some people are up in arms about it. I'm not going to show them the time of day. You know why? Because Eartha Kitt played Catwoman back in the 1960s. This is already, like, established and canon that Catwoman can be black. And in certain continuities, I believe she's also half Cuban, like me. And there are black Cubans. So that's why it's like, I, you know, I, I have no qualms whatsoever with it being a person of color. And I also have no qualms with the caliber of actress they're looking at. You know, the, the, it looks like they're not going for no names. They're going for like exciting, up-and-coming black actresses. And, you know, if that's what they're going for, I'm all for it. Bring it on. I don't know who's going to end up getting the role... But so far, the types of actresses they're looking at, I think, is important. The same thing happened, you know, with Batman earlier this year, where I told you guys back in, like, January, you know, when it comes to these kinds of lists, it's, it's important to just distill them down to the bullet points of who they are. Look at the age range, look at their race, look at their resumes, and, to, and look at the core similarities between the names on these lists. And then that'll show you for, that's kind of like the best you could hope for with these top five lists. 
that they give you an idea of the type of actor who will ultimately get the role, not necessarily tell you one of these five will get the role. Does that make any sense? So that's why I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put too much stock in the list, but if I'm reading between the lines here at the types of actresses they're looking at, I'm very excited. I'm very happy to see what they come up with. And, you know, I'll be excited to kind of support whatever comes next on that front. And while I've got a little bit more to say about Batman, I kind of want to wrap up our headlines here by talking about AEW Dynamite. Because the other big headline I would love to share with you is that AEW Dynamite debuted on Wednesday night and did phenomenally well. It beat the crap out of WWE NXT. And I want to just talk about this for just a couple of minutes. Um, before we get back into some some listener questions and things that came in, uh, because I was there, I was there this past Wednesday night. I drove to Washington D.C. to witness the first ever you know live taping and, and broadcast of Dynamite, and to kind of be part of history. And I got to tell you, I was very very happy with what I saw. I had a very good time at this show. Um, the set was very impressive. The production value was all very good. The roster so far is quite impressive. And in general, I'm very, very big on AEW right now. I think they're a very important, very vital part of the wrestling industry very quickly. And that excites me because the wrestling industry needs a shot in the arm. But I've actually got a separate video that I'm going to be putting up soon about that. So I'm not going to bore you to tears right now for in case there are some non-wrestling fans. But for those of you who are listening who are wrestling fans, before I get back into super geeky stuff, um, you know, my takeaway from episode one of Dynamite was that it was a little restrained. You could tell that they were like almost purposely subverting expectations, not trying to have some big, insane, historic episode right out of the gate. And, you know, I could see how at first that might seem a little disappointing, you know, because other wrestling shows have kind of established a precedent for, you know, your first episode out of the gate, you got to make a lot of noise. And I don't think AEW was very interested in doing that. You know, I think Wade Keller kind of summed it up best on his post show. He was talking about how like this felt almost like episode 14 of Dynamite, not episode one. And that's not a knock. I mean, I think when he said it, it was kind of a knock. But for me, it's not. Because here's the thing. You have to give yourself some place to go. You know, it's like my buddy Colin always says, like, if on, if on your first date with a new girl, you're already bringing out uh, whips and chains and handcuffs and uh, you're, you're showing her to your secret red room from uh, <laughs> the Fifty Shades of Grey, that's great. If, they, if you're doing that on date one, what are you doing on date number 10? You know, where, where do we go from here when we're starting at such a high level? You know what I mean? And in that sense, I kind of like that AEW seemed to kind of show restraint. That seemed, they, they seem to want to like say, okay, this is kind of like our, 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 our standard kind of neutral starting position. And from here... We're going to build and we're going to climb. Here are some seeds we've planted. Here is a taste for the kind of, you know, storytelling that we're going to be exploring on a weekly basis. 
but we're not going to suddenly give you this huge jaw-dropping non-stop spectacle that is now going to be impossible to replicate week by week, which I think some other shows have tried to do. Yeah, I remember when, when Impact moved to Mondays, their first head-to-head against Raw, they threw so much at the screen. They're like, yes, okay, look at your ambition. This is exciting. All right, great. But how do you keep this up? And what ends up happening is you end up with these very sort of scattershot shows trying to chase the dragon and be as buzzworthy as episode one had been. And I kind of like that they started kind of neutral with a couple of nice surprises, but in general, they just kind of set the table. All they did here was set the table and give us somewhere to go so that the stakes can now continuously get raised from here. That's kind of how I viewed it. Now, if every episode of Dynamite is like this, then maybe I could see a cause for concern because then it's like, all right, so, you know, and I guess... You know, I guess instead of dancing around it so much, um, before I change the subject, um, you know, their, their form of sports entertainment, their way of, un, of unfolding their stories is much more sports-centric. It's much more about the action in the ring. And while I appreciate that, you need to have some of the theatrics. You need to have some of the the extra bells and whistles, like the promos and stuff like that. And, and behind, you know, like a, like a backstage promo or a post-match interview. Because remember, this is all fake and we know it's all fake, but we have to invest in the characters. And you don't invest in the characters just because of some great fight choreography. You invest in them because you find out their story and you find out why these wins and losses mean so much to them. You know, and that's that's a component that AEW didn't really bring into episode one and almost on purpose. You know, they they really want to pride themselves on being more sports centric, less about the soap opera stuff, less about the over the top theatricality of the world you know, of the WWE. But I think they went too far in one direction for episode one. So I would love it if they bring a little bit more of the, uh, you know, the, the extra bells and whistles to future episodes. But as things stand for, in terms of like establishing a tone that this is not WWE 2.0, um, and that this is not some unfocused scattershot product that's just trying to impress you with shiny object and returning WWE stars. Um, I think it did a very good job and I was very excited to be in that building. There was an electricity in the air and I did not regret whatsoever the five-hour drive it took to get there. Um, I'm really glad I did it. And I'm really excited to see where AEW goes from here. And seeing all these headlines about AEW from Variety, from Deadline, from serious journalistic trade uh, publications coming out to talk about the success of AEW which, by the way, you know, they, they like double the rating that NXT got. Uh, it's very exciting for me. Because yeah, it's one thing to see, you know, the, the Torch talk about it or the Wrestling Observer or ComicBook.com or any number of other, you know, lower-end fan-driven blog sites talk about it. But when you have the titans of industry like Variety and THR and Deadline paying attention and speaking about your show in, in, in exciting ways, in glowing terms, you know, it's, it's a very big deal. And people forget that AEW 
is part of the Warner Media machine now. You know, they have some serious corporate backing that other companies like TNA or Ring of Honor and the other companies that have, you know, tried to become the real number two since WCW went out of business. They did not have the backing or the support that Dynamite does. And having the Warner Media machine behind them, having the TNT network behind them, this is a really exciting time to be a wrestling fan. And being there Monday, uh, Wednesday night was like, a great kind of initiation back into this world again. Kind of, be, you know, re-embracing, re-getting re to know pro wrestling all over again. I'm very excited, and being part of Dynamite was, an, was a fantastic experience. And yes, I know it was not the flashiest first episode ever, but it didn't need to be. It needed to give us a place to go, and I think it did that nicely. But now... Let's go ahead and start talking about some of the questions and topics that y'all have sent in to me. And since we were just talking about Batman, I'm going to take that one first. So Chase Smith, Twitter user, the underscore Chase underscore Smith, asked me, how would you want Pattinson to come into the DCEU? Or would you rather him stay in the Batverse? Um, well, that's where it gets tricky, doesn't it, Chase? Because right now, depending on how this goes, it's like there are two different continuities going on, or three if you consider the Joker. But, you know, Joker is a standalone thing, so let's just say two, okay? There's whatever universe that Matt Reeves, the Batman, is going to be set in, and there's the current sort of mainline timeline, you know, the mainline continuity that will include Birds of Prey and the Suicide Squad, because, remember, those two build on things we've already seen. Those two build on 2016's Suicide Squad, which was, you know, came out a couple of months after BVS, and is there for you know, with, with Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn and some allusions to Jared Leto's Joker. You know, those movies are going to somehow keep that continuity alive in the eyes of fans. So that's one continuity. But then... You know, you hear some interesting reports about Matt Reeves' Batman movie, how it's probably going to be its own thing that doesn't really connect to anything else. It's not attempting to be a prequel to the Ben Affleck movies or the stuff that we've seen so far. So in other words, if it's not a prequel to Affleck, then it can't really be set in the same world as Birds of Prey or The Suicide Squad. It just kind of can't. It's kind of an impossibility because the Batman in those movies is Ben Affleck, who's going to have a very different backstory and feel overall than the Robert, Bat Robert Pattinson Batman. And he's going to have his own Jeffrey Wright Commissioner Gordon, who does not in any way resemble the J.K. Simmons uh, Commissioner Gordon. So the, Matt Reeves' Batman movie, for all intents and purposes, is setting itself away outside of that kind of branching off and making its own little bat verse kind of like as chase referred to it so what do i want you know how would i get pattinson into the dceu i don't think you really can honestly unless you're going to bring some of the multiverse goodness to the live action world you know if they really do like a flash movie that messes with like the flashpoint type of storyline where now we kind of understand that there are alternate dimensions and timelines and things can be a little skewed or different. 
kind of like they're doing on the TV crossovers, which continue to excite me, by the way, because Brandon Ralph released that picture of Clark Kent as the editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet, and I'm like, ah! Anyway, um, <laughs> that was an unexpected tangent. But, you know, if they bring some of that multiverse goodness to the live-action DC world, then, you know, I guess that's the only way you can really get Robert Pattinson's Batman to one day interact with Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman, for example, or with Margot Robbie and Jared Leto, or even just Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, since, you know, who knows if we're ever going to see Jared Leto's Joker again. So, with that in mind, it, without, you know, it, without any real sci-fi trickery, I don't think they could do it. And it almost doesn't matter. And here's what I mean by that. You know, if, if you trust some of the reports that have gone out, and I kind of do, you know, the one from Forbes, you know, I, I tend to trust Mark Hughes. I know that he's not always right, but I know that his sourcing is very legit. I know that he takes this stuff very seriously. I've had some very interesting, very passionate conversations with Mark on the phone over the years about, you know, him trying to, you know, uh, reason with me about certain rumors that I that I talk about or certain things that I hear. You know, Mark takes this stuff very seriously. And according to him, uh, the word on the street seems to be that Matt Reeves would like to do a trilogy of Batman films and then from there kind of leave things open-ended to allow this Batman to now then be populated into a larger DC cinematic landscape, which is kind of like the total opposite of what Christopher Nolan did, you know, a few years ago, where he had his trilogy, but he kind of purposely set up his third film in a way where it concludes in such a way that it's basically over. It would be very hard to get Bruce Wayne back and to build off of what Nolan did based on the way he made part three and the, you know, the just the, the story structure that he set up for those. It just it didn't work. So if Reeves is doing that and actually going to leave it open so that now the studio has the option to cross-pollinate these projects, well, let's kind of walk that out a little bit. Let's see how long it would take for us to get there, shall we? If the Batman comes out in 2021 and he wants to make a trilogy unless he's filming all three movies back to back to back like some directors do which we've been given no indication that that's what he's doing it's going to take probably about two to three years between movies even you know with the uh, dawn of, uh, with the planet of the apes movies you know he had a uh, dawn of the planet of the apes in 2014 and then he didn't follow that up until 2017. It took three years for the follow-up of that one to come. So if we're going to look at like a two or three year gap between movies, we're looking at the first Matt Reeves Batman arriving in 2021, the second Matt Reeves Batman arriving no sooner than 2023, and then the third Matt Reeves Batman arriving no sooner than 2025. All right, that is six years away. In 2025, we will be eight years removed from Justice League and nine years removed from BVS or Suicide Squad. So therefore, 
The next time you're going to make a Batman movie that comes out, let's say, in 2026 or 2027, all that stuff is going to be a very distant memory. And who knows if the Harley Quinn stuff will still be going on in six years? Who knows if Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins have that many more Wonder Woman stories in them after Wonder Woman 1984? Maybe they're also just going to do a trilogy and then kind of wrap. You know, kind of what the way I see things is, and I've told you about it, we've talked about this before, they're going to spend the next several years really focusing on solo franchises that do not really cross-pollinate unless it's like a direct spin-off. Like I imagine Birds of Prey and the Suicide Squad will have to have some synergy because Margot Robbie is in both. And we know James Gunn knows very well how to deal with synergy because he just made the Guardians of the Galaxy movies in and around the Marvel Studios Avengers movies. So he knows how to play well with others. So you got to imagine in some way, shape, or form... Birds of Prey and the Suicide Squad will have some synergy. But the point I'm getting at is, unless they're that connected, like Birds of Prey and Suicide Squad, we're looking at several years of just solo storytelling, where Batman will be on his own, where Wonder Woman's going to do whatever she's doing in 1984, these Birds of Prey, Suicide Gun, Suicide Gun, <laughs> Suicide Squad movies are going to exist in their own area. And then eventually, we'll cross-pollinate if something really interesting happens. So I imagine right now, they know it's going to be damn near impossible to get Robert Pattinson's Batman to interact with the Suicide Squad, even though it's set in Gotham and it's all about Bat-villains and all this other stuff. It, they, they know it's going to be impossible to merge those two worlds because of the fact that Matt Reeves is in charge of Batman right now, and that Batman has nothing to do with these movies. So what I imagine they're hoping is, we'll figure that out when we get there. You know? I think that's how they're looking at it. They're like, listen, let's let Reeves make his trilogy. Hopefully they're all successful and they're all beloved. And then in 2025 or 2026, when those have wrapped up, then we'll assess how do we cross-pollinate? What creative story conceit can we do to bring this Batman into the same continuity as the others? If they even want to do that. You know, who knows? Maybe maybe after the, the third Wonder Woman movie, that's it for that story. And Gal Gadot is more of the Christian Bale of Wonder Woman than the Robert Downey Jr. of Wonder Woman. Where she's not playing this role for 11 years, she's playing this role to tell one specific arc, and that arc will end in a couple of years. You know, we don't know how this is going to go. And I have a feeling that Warner Brothers is counting on that. That Warner Brothers is just kind of hoping that we just enjoy the next several years of really good DC films, and then if and when the time is right, they'll figure out how or why or when they're going to attempt this whole, you know, cinematic universe where everything is connected again. And unfortunately, you know, for Bob, you know, uh, Stebob1984 over on Twitter, you know, Bob wants me to talk about Superman and the movies and what do I see happening. You know, I don't think we're getting any Superman movies for a bit. It's just a hunch, but I have yet to hear any credible whispers of any real momentum in a long time. A lot of that seemed to dry up in the middle of last year. So I honestly, you know, I, I continue to not be too optimistic 
about Superman's cinematic future. So just to kind of throw that one in there because Bob asked me to comment on that. And then and, and this also addressed uh, Twitter user Stargazer0118, Claudia Balboa, because she wanted me to touch on, you know, DC films and where they seem to be going. So right now in this response about Batman, I just covered like three of you. So hopefully you, you got something out of my answers there. Um, Kaylee Kaiser. What's up, Kaylee? Um, or is it Keeley? I forget. I think you told me once. Keeley or Kaylee asked me, uh, what Elseworld films like Joker would you like to see and what direction is DC likely to take this new label of films in since Joker is looking to open big? Well, listen, we know how Hollywood is. Hollywood is monkey see, monkey do. Hollywood likes to replicate success. So they're going to look at the formula for Joker and they're going to go, okay, let's try to make another one just like this. And they're going to look probably at a different character since I don't think there's, you know, uh, any intention of continuing on with Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. And with that in mind, you know, I kind of, I, I, I thought about this question for a bit. And my, my, my first instinct was to say, I'd love to pick someone who we haven't really seen or gotten to know just yet. You know, Joker is one of these characters we've seen a million times in a million different ways. And maybe that's one of the reasons why this film was a little hard for some to digest. Because there's already so many preconceived notions about who the Joker is or what the Joker is or who he symbolizes. But then I thought about it more. And I'm like, if I'm looking for a character to pull a Joker with, to kind of use as a broken mirror lens for society to try to say something in a low-budget, provocative, artsy sort of way, I would actually go the Lex Luthor route. Um, I, would, I would make Lex... How do I put this without getting, like, polarizing or whatever? But, you know, jo Joker seemed to explore the idea of the mentally ill and how we treat those on the outskirts of society and how that could come back to bite us in the end. What if we look at Lex Luthor and we experience a movie through his perspective? And what I mean by that is a movie where you don't really see Superman ever, except for maybe in headlines or on news reports, but we experience him as a villain. We experience him as Lex Luthor would. And what if we want to make that a commentary, just like Joker is? Because right now... There's an awful lot of people in this country who are getting a very skewed view of the other side of the argument, who rather than looking for diplomacy or trying to understand their neighbor or understand why you know, people feel a certain way, they just look at them as the villains. And with that in mind, you could tell a really interesting story about Lex Luthor as a young man almost becoming radicalized. Almost, you know, getting, you know, pulled into, um, you know, a hateful, dark sort of counterculture that, you know, despite all of Superman's virtues and the fight and, and despite the fact that what he said, you know, what, what he seems to be fighting for is so good in the eyes of this twisted motherfucker, he looks like a villain. And through the perspective of the movie, you actually understand why. It might be an interesting way to explore the way propaganda works, the way indoctrination works, the way parents can train their, you know, can, can teach their children to hate from a very early age. 
So what if Lex inherits this sort of outlook from his father? You know, I'm just, there's lots of interesting ways to approach this, but I guess in a nutshell, I would like to see a Lex Luthor movie done in the Joker style where Superman is the enemy and they really treat him as such. Treat him as this alien who's coming to take away everything that he and his family have fought for. You know, you can really get into some really fun political commentary and really hold a mirror up to society the way Todd Phillips did with Joker. You can do something very similar with Luthor in the right creative hands. So, Kylie, that would kind of be my answer for that. And that just about does it for me, but just a quick kind of tease of things to come since I am kind of getting back in the swing of things here, creating regular content for you guys. And I've had so much Superman on the mind lately, thanks to these wonderful images that Brandon Routh is releasing of his work on the Arrowverse crossover Crisis on Infinite Earths. I've had a lot of Superman on the mind lately, a lot of amazing imagery to look through, a lot of memories to reminisce about, a lot of interesting conversations with with fellow Superman fans about, you know, the last couple of attempts to get his solo franchise, you know, flying again. It's, it's, it's terribly bittersweet to see Brandon Routh, who looks like he was born to play this role, you know, getting a chance to do it, but in such like a, it's such a different medium than the one that so many of us would like to see him, you know, be Superman in. And with that in mind, I'm now... Uh, happy to tease and sort of announce. I'm not going to give myself a, a, a set date because that's usually where I run into trouble because something always comes up when I do that. But somewhere in the next week or two, I will be recording not one, but two audio commentaries. And unlike the BVS one that I recorded with Brett and Vanessa that I've actually never released because I really wasn't happy with how it turned out and we could talk about that some other time. But I wasn't happy with the ultimate outcome. I may have to redo that one, or maybe I'll do it on my own. But I'm going to actually release a commentary for both Superman Returns with our boy Brandon Ralph and for Man of Steel with Henry Cavill. I will do a, an audio commentary for both of the last two solo Superman movies. And it is my hope to kind of be able to kind of drop the gavel for the final time on both of these movies. Because I've been speaking about Superman Returns for 13 years. I've been speaking about Man of Steel for six years. In many ways, it's my love for these movies that led to all of this stuff, to this podcast, to Revenge of the Fans, to me even writing at all for Latino Review or any of the other things I've done. And I'm looking forward to having like a final look at the last two times to get Superman going. And I'm not going to make him a Patreon thing. I mean, the Patreon stuff right now, since we're not creating regular content anymore, you know, I, I, it's just, you know, for, for those of you who've left the Patreon campaign, I understand. For those of you who are still there, I appreciate you so much. But right now, since I owe you guys a lot of content, since I disappeared for a couple of months, um, I'm going to make it up to you by making these free. You're going to be able to either download them 
on the podcast feed, or you can even you know pull them up on your YouTube. However is easiest for you to pull up an audio commentary so that if you want to hear my, you know, mindless ramblings during your next viewings of Man of Steel or Superman Returns, you'll have the option to do that. Okay, I'm going to make it easy, accessible, free, and it's just something I'm sharing with you guys since for whatever reason, you guys seem to like when I talk about my hero, Kal-El, the last son of Krypton. So looking forward to recording those commentaries. Uh, Superman Returns coming to Netflix is going to make that much easier for me. And uh, that was just my cheap plug for saying, hey guys, Superman Returns is on Netflix, give it another shot. Or don't. And wait until my commentary goes up, probably in about a week. And then watch it then if you want to hear kind of where I'm at with that movie 13 years after it came out. Maybe I could change your mind. Or maybe you'll hear my own mind get changed during the movie. You know, because I actually haven't sat and watched it start to finish in probably about six or seven years. I mean, this is a movie that I've seen 20 times start to finish in total. But I just haven't done it in a while. So I'm going to do it for the first time in years with a mic in front of me. So hopefully it'll be entertaining for you. And then Man of Steel. This is going to be like probably the sixth or seventh time I've ever seen it. And my feelings for it, you know, I, it's always a roller coaster ride, that movie. It's always a roller coaster ride for me because there's stuff that I love beyond all reasonable measure. And there's stuff that makes me never want to see it again. And you'll kind of get to hear me go through that roller coaster ride when I record my audio commentary for Man of Steel. So that was just a little teaser for things to come. It's going to happen in the next week or two. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you to all of you who seem to support and encourage my love of Superman and seem to want to hear me talk about it. And uh, that's it, folks. That, do that, that does it for episode 101. So until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.